Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Welcome to this week's 7-Minute Torah. This week we're talking with Rabbi Miri Gold. She served for years as the rabbi of Congregation Birkat Shalom at Kibbutz Gezer in Israel. She's also one of the first women rabbis in Israel, and as we'll talk about in the second part of the interview, the first non-Orthodox rabbi to be recognized by the state of Israel. And we're talking about the parsha that's called Ekev. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 12 through chapter 11 verse 25. Ekev is part of Moses' final speeches to the Jewish people as they are about to cross over into the land of Israel. And as you'll see, this Parsha is a lot about the land of Israel. In this Parsha, Moses drives home a number of connections to the land, including the traditional commandment to bless food that comes out of the land, as well as connections to various species of plants that grow in the land, to rainfall and agriculture and seasons. Rabbi Miri Gold, welcome to the program and thanks for being with me today. Thank you for inviting me. You have a really interesting story about being a reform rabbi in Israel, one of the first women rabbis in Israel, in fact. All of which I think relates to this week's Parsha, which is Ekev. One of the things that, that you pointed out to me is that this really speaks to the centrality of, of Israel in Jewish life. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well... There's the famous line in chapter 8, verse 8, where it mentions the seven species, shivata minim, um, which are indigenous to the land of Israel. It says, uh, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, which people say means date honey. Um, and the fact that all of these are found in Israel um, showing the plenty that is in the land, I think is a way um, for people, Jewish people all over the world to relate to this good land. What makes it so visceral for me is the fact that for 18 years, my husband, David Leishman, a Jewish educator, had a, had a park in Israel called Pinachu Rashim. And so in the park, which had been this wildly overgrown area adjacent to a military cemetery where 23, 24 year olds who had come out of the Holocaust died in a battle trying to defend Kibbutz Gezer. It was a third of the members, um, I think 20 out of 60 people, which um, is a lot of people to, to die in one battle. Wow. Um, and so at the time, the thought was, let's make the area around this military section more beautiful and give honor to their memory instead of just seeing all these weeds. So, so in order to honor their memory, all of the seven species were planted if they weren't already there. And it became part of the educational program to um, recognize what they look like and to see the different verses in the Bible that refer to them. I think it's it's just interesting that even if we listened when we grew up going to Hebrew school, if we you know felt connected to the text to actually see it is a different story and it brings more of a connectedness. I'm so fascinated by this idea of the the park that you're describing, which was intended to honor 
people who had died in, in Israel's war of establishment. And the way that they did that was by creating a park with the seven species of the Bible. So there's this really clear connection between the modern state, that is the project of building the modern state, and the biblical description of the land of Israel. And in fact, as we read this Parsha, what we see over and over again are these descriptions of the land of Israel and of the Jewish connection to the land of Israel. Here are the species that live there. Here's the way the rain will play into your life. There's this whole reward and punishment theology that you find throughout the book of Deuteronomy that essentially says, if God's happy with you, then things will go well for you on the land and you'll have enough rain. And if God's not happy with you, then you might be in trouble. And we could probably have that conversation for an hour in terms of, you know, whether we believe in reward and punishment theology. But the connection to the land is so clear. Yeah, so two points that connect to that. One, I think it's interesting that the second paragraph of the Shema is not in Reformed prayer books in um, North America because people have trouble with this idea of the reward and punishment. Um, on the other hand, living in Israel, I think I've become more sensitive perhaps to issues of ecology and environment. If we don't take care of the environment, we are not going to have the rain and season. That paragraph essentially says something like that if you take care to follow God's commandments, then the rain will fall in the proper season. So I I can see where that's challenging because one of the messages there is if things don't go well for you, then you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. And so that was removed from Reformed prayer books early on. But on the other hand, if you think about just how connected our actions are to the land, that if we if we are not kind to the land, in fact, the rain doesn't fall properly. And also note that in those verses, when you read it in English, it's not as obvious because it says you, but when you read it in Hebrew, it's in the plural. So mm. it's not saying that because one person uh, sinned in some other way, it's talking about how we as a community, we as a world are responsible for the world. You know, I recycle as much as I can. It doesn't mean that everything's hunky-dory. It's got to be by a lot of people. But what's really fascinating to me is that when it talks about what we will gather in, your new grain and your wine and your oil, that shows us symbols that wherever we live around the world, on Shabbat evening, when we say the brachot, we light the candles, that's the oil. We um, use the wine for kiddush and we use the grain for the chalot. And so wherever we are, we're connected by these things that we find in the land of Israel. And this paragraph is in our mezuzah. And so wherever your mezuzah is, it also draws you to sort of a center. And of course, as we know, Jerusalem is really our focus. And if you live in Australia, you're looking north and west. And if you're in spot, you're facing south. It gives us a sense of connectedness for me, Parashat Ekev is something that is a very living and breathing um, Parashat. Yeah, I, I can see that. You taught me something new. I never thought about that with the oil, grain, and wine before, how we connect with the land of Israel every single Friday night. Do you think that Israelis are still connecting with the land in these very visceral ways? Well, if we take out the, uh, the political connections people have to the land, you know, some people say it's written that it's all ours and it's with very expansive borders. But 
it's very interesting that Israeli children for generations um, are taken on to Lim on trips to see the land. And every Israeli child knows not to pick the wildflowers. I mean, these things are ingrained in them. Mm. Of what you can pick, what you can't pick um, to preserve the land. It's interesting that um, people my generation who are in their 60s, 70s or more, who grew up in the seemingly very secular youth movement of Hashomer Tzair, were often the ones who knew the Bible the best and knew the pathways and, and the valleys and the streams more than anybody because it was so ingrained in them to have that connection to the land. It wasn't necessarily a connection to God, but it was a connection to their identity and a very close connection to the place. What drew me to Israel in the first place, among other things, was the fact that the holidays and the seasons mesh. Growing up in Detroit, it didn't mesh to have snow on Pesach hmm. or for sure nothing related to um, Tu Bishvat. I mean, it was all the trees were dormant. And I remember distinctly that my grandfather, who came as a 15-year-old from Belarus and Tu Bishvat, he would always have this weird dried up piece of fruit, which um, he called boxer. What's boxer? It's St. John's bread, or in Hebrew, we call it haru, the carob. Think of snow in Russia at Tu Bishvat. They had something from Eretz Yisrael, um, and that's what he could bring out, even years later in Detroit, to say, this is how we celebrated on Tu Bishvat. If you think about when Rosh Hashanah will be, it's going to be early September, right? Mm -hmm. We're all saying, oh, the holidays are coming so early this year, but they're not because it's the first day of Tishrei. And in the same way, Tu Bishvat is the 15th of Shvat. Because I used to say, how can it be that the almond trees are blossoming in Israel, whether it's January or February? Duh, because it's the 15th of Shvat. And that's why there's a breeze on the ball field. So that brought me to Israel, the fact that there's a rhythm of our life with Shabbat and the holidays. You can't not know it's Shabbat because things slow down, because a lot of places close. And I love that about being in Israel. I always feel that had I stayed in the States, I would have worked very hard to retain my identity. Of course, when I made Aliyah, I discovered it's not so easy to be a liberal Jew in Israel, but that we'll probably talk about also. Um, but I've always loved that connection of the seasons meshing with the holidays. Rabbi Miri Gold, you've given me a lot to think about, and also you're making me want to come to Israel. For our listeners, thanks for tuning in for this conversation about Parshat Ekev. If you can stick around, we have more to talk about with Rabbi Miri Gold. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. So we're back, Rabbi Miri Gold. Thanks for your wisdom today about the land of Israel. I'm curious to continue that conversation. Your life in Israel has been, of course, 
about connectedness with the land. And as we said, you've spent your life at Kibbutz Gezer, which is a beautiful place. And I got to visit the, visit you there a few years ago and eat homemade ice cream at your home. That was a highlight for my kids of our trip. Um, you also have been a trailblazer in lots of ways as one of the early reform rabbis and certainly one of the first women rabbis in Israel. So I'd love to hear about a little more about that. What's it been like being I believe you're the third woman rabbi in Israel. I guess tell us about the about the career and about the the life that you've led as one of the leaders of Reform Judaism of liberal Judaism in Israel. I was the third woman ordained in the Reform movement in Israel. Um, I chose to go to school at Hebrew Union College, even though I'd grown up in the the conservative movement in Detroit. Um, one reason being because at that time, the conservative movement was sending the women to finish their rabbinic studies in the States because mm. somehow they didn't want to draw attention to the um, ordination of the women. I said, that's not for me. Also, it wasn't practical because I had three little kids. I started rabbinic school at the age of 44 um, as a second career, you might say. Um, but it evolved from years before that, when at Kibbutz Gezer, we always saw ourselves as a liberal Jewish community, but without a structure really. And um, we, we never fit into the Kibbutz Dati, which is modern Orthodox. We didn't fit into the majority of Kibbutzim that had wonderful um, Jewish cultural activities around the holidays. I mean, really very, very special. But we were coming from a place where if you light candles, you say a bracha. And in those places, they would light the candles without the bracha. So we said, we want to create our own niche. And when it came to Pesach, instead of having long rows of, of tables and using the kibbutz Haggadah that pretty much didn't mention God at all, we used, um, I think it was Jules Harlow's uh, kind of traditional conservative uh, Haggadah. And then over time, uh, when I went to school and started at HUC, I realized that reform in Israel was very much like a liberal conservative um, Judaism because people know Hebrew. In fact, once a friend of ours was at um, one of the synagogues in Jerusalem and she said, how can this be reformed? There's no English. Well, actually, <laughs> after that, there was um, a big change to offer the, um, the prayer books in Hebrew and English. And right now, there's a brand new Sidur in Israel through the reform movement. And um, there is a translation being worked on now. like An English translation. So it'll be Hebrew-English, like you often see in the States with prayer books. So what's the um, reason for that? I, I presume that most Israeli Reformed Jews speak Hebrew. Why would there be need for translation? And I assume there's also a Russian translation, right? Um, I don't know that there is yet. Uh, let's face it, Americans and North Americans, knowing that English is such a universal language are not, especially as immigrants, are not always the first ones to really learn Hebrew super well. But I think part of it is because um, we feel a connection in Israel to Jewish communities around the world. 
Hmm. So the English is a way for people coming to visit to feel at home, to feel connected. And even for someone like me, whose Hebrew is decent and I understand the prayers, I like having the ability to look at the English. Um, sometimes I, I get different meanings if I see it that way. Um, but it really is to make the visitor feel welcome. And the visitor is generally um, from somewhere where they know English, even if it's not their native tongue, if they're even if they're German, they'll know English. If they're Dutch, they'll know. And the Russians, um, I know that in Israel and the Reform Movement, there are Russian Hebrew um, Tanakh books and it divided in, in you know, Torah, Nevin, Tuvin, but they're there for the many Russians who come to Israel and have been converting through the Reform Movement for their, as they say, for their soul. Now, from a generational perspective, the 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 Israeli reform rabbis who are being ordained these days, I imagine largely are sabras. And so there you do have, I think, an Israelification, if that is such a word, of the reform movement. Are you seeing a shift in um, progressive Jewish life in Israel as the movement becomes more and more native born? Well, you know what? I'm thinking about rabbinic students. There are always rabbinic students who come from somewhere else whether it's the former Soviet Union or South America, there are always some who are immigrants. Um, it's interesting because even after having had a congregation for 20 years where very patiently I would explain to people who would call to find out about having a bar or even more unusual, a bat mitzvah ceremony for their child, I had to start with, the basic ABCs of what it means to have a ceremony in a reform setting, that the family sitting together. Um, that's, that's the most important thing for many, especially women to be able to sit with their, their family together. Um, and in general, I think the whole, the whole um, <clears throat> force between having the separate movement of synagogue so that people find it warm and inviting and meaningful. And let's face it, every family can find the closest Orthodox synagogue around the corner. And they can go to a ceremony where it's a lot of mumble jumble and the mother's behind a curtain or way up in a balcony. And it's not meaningful, but there's still some sense that this is what we're supposed to do. But more and more younger families are saying, and thank goodness they're interested, but they want to do it in a meaningful way. Um, and so, yes, you'll find um, Israeli poetry often, and you'll find other sensitivities in some of the prayers. So if you look at the fact that there are 50 preschools all around the country, yeah, most of these are children of native Israelis, but there's also um, a congregation in the Haifa area that's made up of um, immigrants from the former Soviet Union. And there's one in Nairia where there just happened to be a lot of people who came from South America and settled hmm. in Nairia. So there's a real gamut. And of course, if you look at Jerusalem, you have Kola Neshama, where the founding generation came from North America and from Britain, but the younger generation are all 
born in Israel. And now their children are going to the Gan. So speaking of the growth of progressive Judaism in Israel, I know that you were part of a, a very important court case to get Reform Judaism recognized or Reform rabbis recognized in Israel. And I'm wondering if you'll tell us tell us a little bit about that. Okay. One of the things that still stands out for someone coming from North America is that there is no separation of church and state in Israel. There's a minister for religious affairs. People pay taxes to the government for religious purposes um, until my court case and a little before that, um, all monies were channeled to the Orthodox only. And at some point, the Israel Religious Action Center said, we've got to break this cycle because the truth is that the rabbinate is like a quasi-governmental agency. They have control over everything from birth to death with the sanction of the government. Um, and I'm happy that we have the Israel Religious Action Center because they're always in the court fighting for religious rights for people who don't buy into the Orthodox way. And having said that, many, many, many Israelis who might call themselves secular um, only know Judaism through Orthodox eyes. And so if they say, well, it's not for me, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and so I think what we're, what we're realizing is that it's not correct to say that Judaism in Israel is black and white, as if to say black means you're black hat orthodox and white is you're secular and you don't do anything and you don't know anything. That is so not true. There's an amazing um, range of observance, of behavior, of ideas. And let's face it, someone in Israel says they're secular has Hebrew as their native tongue. They've studied um, Tanakh in school. And if they were lucky, they had a good teacher who made it come alive. Um, they know when it's Pesach, and even if it's just a family dinner, something happens that night. And even today, a huge percentage of Israelis fast on Yom Kippur. Nobody drives. People who are not observing still keep their music down. And what I always found fascinating was that on the Hashomer Tzair Kibbutzim, they would do a dafka. On Yom Kippur, they'd have a big meal, a big celebration. Ah. So in their way, they were celebrating an important holiday and having conversations about what it means to ask for forgiveness or to be forgiving. And the subject matter comes up in, in so many different ways. So there's no one, there are very few people who are just totally indifferent or anti. Most people have their own way of being engaged. Right. So Israel's always had this pluralism of, of Jewish practice, of different ways to be Jewish. But the rabbinate didn't recognize different ways to be Jewish, right? Therefore, from my perspective as a reform rabbi in Israel, and add to that being a woman rabbi, I realized that before we can get to a celebration of Judaism in pluralist ways, and there's no word really for pluralist in Hebrew, they'll say some people call it pluralism. <laughs> um, but the truth is, if we could have more tolerance in Israel, 
we would be doing better. And I have to admit that I'm not always tolerant when I see um, ultra-Orthodox people in the street, but I think it's very important that we all learn that sevel, which means suffering, is the root of the word savlanut or patience and sovlanut, which is tolerance. We don't always tolerate certain things, but we have to tolerate in a democratic Jewish country, we have to tolerate the fact that not everybody thinks the way we do. Mm-hmm. And so we haven't yet gotten to the celebration that I'd like to see, but more and more, even though reform and conservative Jews in Israel as being counted in a survey are only about 10, 11%. No different, by the way, than the percentage of ultra-Orthodox Jews. They're also about 10, 11%, but they have much more clout. So the Israel Religious Action Center said we have to break this circle of having all monies go to the Orthodox. And they asked me if I would be a plaintiff to demand getting a salary for my work as my community rabbi. The reason they turned to me is because I live on a kibbutz, which is part of a regional council. And a regional council is made up of communities up to 5,000 people. And every single community has a rabbi assigned to it, whether living there or not, whether the the members of the community want the rabbi or not, he's assigned and gets a salary from the government. So IRAC, the Israel Religious Action Center said, we're not going to turn to the religious affairs ministry because they will never acknowledge us. We're gonna go to the prime minister's office. It took from 2005 to 2012 when the attorney general, not the Supreme Court, the attorney general basically said, we've got to make a decision. And he came out with a statement that rabbis of non-Orthodox Jewish communities in rural areas are entitled to state salaries. Um, Why rural? Because if we had in the same court case, every neighborhood in Jerusalem or Haifa or Tzfat, we would never have gotten anywhere. To make a long story short, it was implemented in 2014. The money comes from the Ministry of Culture and Sport, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, while our court case was sort of languishing in the courts because the government did everything they could to stall it and make excuses, another case was one that was significant. In the new city of Modi'in, today about 25 years old, it was glaring that Orthodox communities had buildings for their synagogues. And the reform community, Yosma, and the conservative community, um, I want to say Yadid Nefesh, did not have buildings. So Iraq took this to the court, and the court actually said, whether people like it or not, there are streams of Judaism in Israel, and therefore money is going to help provide a home for synagogue congregations need to go to the reform and conservative communities as well. At the time, Isaac Herzog, who is now the president of the state of Israel, was the minister of housing. And he made sure that that decision was carried out. And so quite a few synagogue communities around Israel, both reform and conservative, got these prefab buildings that at least gave them a home. And even Birkat Shalom in 2016 had a dedication 
of a prefab. Before that, we were in a one-room classroom from the 1950s that was inadequate. So there's progress at a slow pace. I'd say under the radar, there's much more openness than officially in the state. And let's face it, right now, the government of Israel, which is not perfect, does not have the ultra-Orthodox in the government. Um, you know, there's always threats and this and that, but it is different than it's been. So you, and, through that court case, you became then the, the first reform rabbi in Israel to be recognized or at least paid a salary by, by the state. Yes. And as you point out, the, the new government, what makes it different from some previous governments is that it doesn't have orthodox parties as part of as part of the government and the other difference or one other difference that's worth pointing out is that for the very first time we have a reform rabbi who's in the Knesset Rabbi Gilad Kariv who's the head of or maybe immediate past head of you can correct me if I'm wrong of the reform movement ran for and was elected as a member of the Knesset and is actually part of the government since the labor government sorry the labor party is in the government right now so that's a huge change a huge development for the reform movement and what's sad is that the the ultra orthodox have made big declarations that <clears throat> he will not be counted in their minyan if he shows up they won't kick him out but they absolutely will look right through him and when you think about how ridiculous that is, that whether you think the definition of Jewish is by your mother or your father or whatever, there's never been such a thing that if you are not Orthodox, you're not Jewish. Let's face it. And those same ultra-Orthodox would much rather deal with the person who calls himself secular than with someone who's trying to live an actively Jewish liberal life. Um, and unfortunately, if you read the pluralist that comes out of the Israel Religious Action Center, you're always reading about cases being brought to the courts. Um, some of them are very painful. A mother and her daughters were literally shunned from being anywhere near the burial of the husband and the father. They weren't allowed to have a eulogy. They weren't allowed to say Kaddish. So more and more Israelis are avoiding using the Hebrew Kaddisha for that reason. And probably there will be a major court case um, very soon against that particular community. I don't know if it was a city or if it was a regional council. I don't know. But it's pretty outrageous to think that that's still going on. Yeah, it takes time. But ultimately, people do want their religious practice to be meaningful to them. And so they seek out different ways to be Jewish, because of course, there are different ways to be Jewish. Uh, let me ask you about something less controversial. And okay. that's baseball. Because this year, for the first time, Israel has a baseball team in the Olympics. And I know your son is part of that team. So we started talking about it a little bit before we actually started recording. But I'm excited that Israel has a baseball team is is Israel excited right now to have a baseball team in the Olympics? Well, let's face it, right now there are about a thousand kids who play baseball in Israel. So it's not um, something that's a household word for many people. But because we do have the team and there's been a lot of publicity, more and more people are interested. And I'm assuming, although it's not written in the uh, schedule of 
the sports channel. I'm assuming that the local sports channel will broadcast the game. Um, it's telling that in the recent all-star game from the States and North America, that it was broadcast in Israel. And there was an Israeli who's a veteran baseball player who went to college in the States, but a native Israeli um, doing sort of a, I don't know, over speak where he would say certain things about what was happening in Hebrew for those watching. And he actually called my son alone, who at the time was still in the States. He's a pitching coach for the double A team of the Seattle Mariners. And they were just having a conversation for 15 or 20 minutes. The fact that it was on TV in Israel was a big deal. The World Series has been in, on TV in Israel. So hopefully this Olympic game there'll be two of them thursday and friday um the 29th and 30th of july and then august 2nd depending on what happens there'll be other games and we'll see how israel does but we're getting a lot of uh you know whatsapp and uh, messenger and emails and phone calls and actually there was just an article put in the foreword an interview with the parents of, you know, hmm. how do we feel about it? And of course, we're very excited and very proud. And uh, our son alone has worked with great determination over the last two years, getting himself in the best possible shape he can. He's a pitcher. And um, so we're really hoping that he'll have a chance to pitch an inning here or there and that they'll do well and bring us a, a medal. There's a good chance. They're, well. they're ranked. 24th in the world and all the other teams are in the top 10 but um we came out of nowhere to get way up in the world baseball classic in 2017 so we're hoping it'll be well and like i was saying to you before most of the players are not native israelis but they are jewish and they made aliyah so they can play and they are so proud that they represent israel and so proud that they can help excite the kids who are playing baseball in Israel. And there's a real special camaraderie among the team members. They have something that gives them a strong bond that some of the other teams may not have. Very cool. Well, congratulations on having an Olympian for a son. That in and of itself is really exciting. It um, can I ask you just a couple more questions? These are the questions I ask everybody about your approach to Judaism and as a, as a Jewish leader and a thought leader. And the first one is, I'm curious whether there is a, a Jewish ritual. We've talked about the ritual of Shema briefly. We talked about the Friday night rituals. We talked about you living in Israel in connection with the land of Israel. Is there one Jewish ritual that you have found particularly meaningful in your own life? I would say that in general, for me, a ritual becomes important when it reinforces a value. So for example, when we have our Pesach Seder, um, we're reinforcing the value that nobody should be a slave, that we as Jews should not enslave others. And of course, there's no perfect world yet. And so I think this value is always of utmost importance. And that if that message is brought across through having a little bit of matzo or some maror or haroset, that there's so many creative ways to use these rituals to make it meaningful. 
Um, so that's something that I think as an adult um, has really taken hold with me. And the other thing over the last year plus of Corona, especially, um, the fact that we have Birkot HaShachar, whether one actually opens a prayer book or not in the morning, but just the idea that when we get up in the morning, it's a good time to take stock, no matter what's happening in our lives, and to think, what are things that I'm grateful for? Mm. Um, and we've had a lot of challenges, and we still do. So if we can maybe give ourselves some strength by thinking of the good things that we have, and hopefully everybody can think of something that's good in their lives. I think it's a very healthy approach to start the day. You know, you, you hear about mindfulness, meditation, all kinds of things that are seemingly modern, but I think it's all very ancient. And it seems to me that in, in Jewish um, literature, Birkot HaShachar, um, which in the reform book, I think is called uh, the miracles of every day or something like that. But yeah, exactly. literally the, the blessings of the shachar of the dawn. And if we can um, allow ourselves to think of those things that um, we have when we get up in the morning, to me, that's a very important thing. And so one for me, one of the most important things is the fact that I am blessed that my grandchildren live two minutes walking for me on the kibbutz. Mm. Um, and they can come over. In fact, just as we were starting, I heard little voices squeaking because they came over to get something. Um, that with all the things that are difficult, I always hold that one close to my heart that I'm just so fortunate when I know that there have been children and grandparents who haven't seen each other in so long and haven't been able to hug and everything that my heart goes out to them. So I just truly count my blessings. So I would say those are the rituals that I would think of. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. That's beautiful. And I, I also I find those morning blessings to be so powerful to start our day with a sense of gratitude for what we do have for the things that surround us. Thank you for highlighting that. One last question. What book do we all need to read? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to mention two. It's funny because I was asked that by the um, rabbis for human rights around the week of the book in Israel. It's called Shavua Sefer. Hmm. And one book is um, Finding God in the Garden by Belfer Brickner, hmm. I think, because there have been generations of Brickners. And I've, I have a habit, which is not a good one, of giving books out on loan and then not getting them back. So I have the same habit. So I'm not sure where it is right now to double check, but it's a lovely book, I think, um, about a retired rabbi who loves working in his garden and all the kind of spiritual things that he finds as he's relating to his garden. Um, the other book that I find very important is The Anatomy of Hope by Dr. Jerome Groupman, G-R-O-O-P-M-A-N, who is an oncologist who went through a difficult bout with cancer. And he talks about the place that hope plays in our lives, the importance of having hope. And 
I have come to think that hope is actually a commandment. Um, we, David and I went to the Soviet Union in 1980 when there were still Jews who were refused the possibility of leaving Israel and somebody being put in jail. And we adopted a couple when we came back. We put up um, a poster with a picture of this man, Alex Zelichunik, and he would send letters with beautiful stamps. And we'd try to keep people at Gezer interested. And I remember thinking all the time, and similarly with this court case, by the way, that languished for so many years, that I don't know for sure if the court case will be solved. I didn't know for sure if he'd ever get out, but I felt like I must do whatever I can with hope to bolster me that yes, he will get out. And sure enough, in 1989, he got out. He celebrated his first Passover on the kibbutz with us. Mm -hmm. um, and it taught me an important lesson that we often have many challenges and goals and they don't get solved immediately, but we have to have the hope to give us the strength to be active and proactive and work for the things that are important to us. So the, the anatomy of hope was basically, you know, you can pray for a miracle, but don't count on it solely. You have to work hard to try to solve different problems. So I found that and still find it to be a very inspiring book. Wonderful. Rabbi Miri Gold, I want to thank you for your time today, for your wisdom, for sharing your experiences. You've given us all a lot to think, to think about. Thank you. And thank you and hope to see you in Israel in the coming year. That's our episode for this week. My thanks to Rabbi Miri Gold for joining me as guest and good luck to her son, Alon Leishman, and the Israeli baseball team in their Olympic matches this weekend. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.